Sermons from Union Chapel Baptist Church. So today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. Continuing our series, going verse by verse through the book of Matthew. And the title of today's sermon is Mercy That Leads to Joy. So we're going to see two main stories, two different stories here. One, the first, where Jesus will show mercy to tax collectors and sinners. And how he shows mercy to the sick. How he shows mercy to those who are sinful. And because of this, this leads us into joy. Because we are no longer in uh, desperation. We are no longer um, in our sin. But the kingdom has come. Jesus is here. And so we can live in joy. We don't have to live um, in sorrow and in fasting anymore. And so that's the fasting part will be the second story, but the two are connected because mercy will lead to joy. So uh, open your Bibles if you would like to follow along. Matthew 9, starting in verse 9, says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. So already we see something amazing. We have the Son of God. He's on a mission to save his people from their sins. He's about to, he's bringing in the kingdom of God. And thus far, he has chosen four fishermen to be his disciples and now a tax collector. This choice for Jesus to call a tax collector magnifies his grace and mercy. While others in Jewish, Jewish society hated tax collectors, Jesus shows him love. Many hated tax collectors because uh, the tax collectors were working with the Roman government, and they, thus they were seen as traitors to the Jewish people. Jesus even uses the tax collectors as a negative example back in Matthew 5, 46. He says, For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? And he says, Don't even the tax collectors do the same. Ouch, if you're a tax collector, you're like, what's that, what's that supposed to mean, Jesus? Even the tax collectors love people who love them. And Jesus is, is um, saying that's not saying much if you love somebody that loves you. Even the tax collectors do, do that. You've got to be better than the tax collectors. And so uh, Jesus gives this negative example. And we also see from, from history that many tax collectors were also disliked because they invented new taxes so they could have more money for themselves. And then, as one commentator notes, he goes on to, to list all these different examples. He says, tax collectors were so notoriously dishonest that they were generally not qualified to serve even as witnesses in court. Like, we don't trust that guy. He's a tax collector. And then another one, another source says they compared an encounter with a tax collector to meeting a bear face to face because one rarely left the encounter unharmed. <laughs> and then even beggars were not permitted to accept contributions from the tax collectors because they were, they, it was assumed that their money had been stolen from others. Even the beggars were like, we're not going to take your money. You stole it. And if a tax collector stepped into a Jewish home, the house and everything in it would be defiled because they were considered ritually unclean because they are frequently interacted with Gentiles. So they do not have the best reputation at all. 
So with all this in mind, it really shows how amazing and gracious and merciful Jesus is to call Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him, to be his disciple. It would have been so much easier for Jesus to call someone with a better reputation. It would have avoided controversy. He could have avoided being misunderstood. But the thing about Jesus is that he cares more about Matthew, he cares more about sinners and tax collectors than he cares about taking the easy road. He cares more about Matthew than trying to project a good and clean reputation. He cares more about Matthew than risking controversy. So as a church, we must also be like Jesus. We must love, we must show grace, we must show mercy to those who society treats as outcasts, those who our society dislikes or even hates. We must love those who don't have a good reputation. We must love those who lie, who steal, who cheat. We must be concerned more about people's salvation and more concerned about teaching others to follow Jesus than how others might perceive us. Because the church, we're not a country club. We're, we're not well-to-do people. We don't just come and meet and talk about how good we are. But the church is a hospital for the sick and wounded. The church is a rehab facility for the hurt and addicted. We are to call people to follow Jesus, not choose the easy way of only inviting those who look like us, or only inviting or loving those people who seem to have it all together. And because honestly, no, nobody has it all together, no matter what the image they may portray. But we are called to love everyone, even our perceived enemies, even those whose life is a mess and complicated. We are to call everyone to follow Jesus. So if we look back in Matthew 9, 9, we see how Jesus called Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him. And we see that Matthew immediately obeys. So while the church is made up of imperfect sinners, we don't stay the same when we came in. Jesus is the great physician. He heals our sinful hearts. He actually gives us new hearts, hearts that desire to obey his commands. So we can't use the excuse that we're all imperfect and that we have our sins to deal with. We can't use that as an, as an excuse not to repent of our sins, as an excuse not to follow Jesus. When he says, follow me in this way, we should obey. As followers of Christ, we will stumble, but followers of Christ don't consistently run in the opposite direction of their Lord and Savior. When Jesus saves you, he calls you to follow him in obedience. And so after he calls Matthew, the tax collector, one of his disciples, we also see his mission, Jesus' mission, spread to other tax collectors in verse 10. And not only tax collectors, but people who are known for their sin. They're labeled as sinners. So Matthew 9.10 says, while he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. So this is often how relationships are built and how whole families and communities can be reached for the gospel of Jesus. All it may take is befriending one person who then introduces you to all his family and friends. 
giving an opportunity for the message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to take root in their lives. And a lot of the times, these, re- these relationships are built over the dinner table, being hospitable, going to their house. It's, it, even in a time of pandemic, may be challenging, and I don't want to uh, pressure anyone that feels uncomfortable or if you have medical needs. Um, I don't want to make you feel comfortable in doing this. But if you are comfortable, I encourage everyone to plan a day to invite somebody over to your house. You can, eat, you can even eat, eat outside if that is better. But I want you to invite someone over to your house for a meal. Invite someone maybe that is looked down upon, that is an outsider. Someone that you wouldn't normally hang out with. Someone who is different from you. Who, and maybe even someone whose lifestyle is characterized by sin and unbelief. I want you to show someone the love and grace of Jesus this week. So while we should seek out sinners, and that's what I'm encouraging us to do as a church, to seek out sinners, be with them, eat with them, in hopes to lead them to repentance, we must not use this as an excuse to join others in their sin. So we don't want to go to the opposite way. Because here, Jesus was eating with sinners, but he was not condoning their sin. He is eating with them publicly. He's not trying to be secretive about it. So while we do want to reach the lost, we must also be wise and realize our individual limitations. So if you are hanging out with someone so you, that you can join in on their gossip, join in on their crude joking, cursing, excess, excessive drinking, that's not the way of Jesus. Jesus didn't hang out with sinners to sin alongside them, but to save them from their sins. As Dr. Turner has written, Association with unbelievers must be handled with wisdom so that the ethical compromise is avoided. But fear of such compromise cannot become an excuse for isolation from those who most need the message of the kingdom. So we don't want to go to one ditch or the other. We want to go on the narrow road seeking out unbelievers, seeking out sinners and loving them in mercy, but also being wise about it. So having dinner with someone, especially at their house, is a special time for many people, even today, to have a meal with someone. This occasion was perhaps even more special in Jesus' time. As one commentator writes, for a, for a Jewish religious teacher to share a meal with such people was scandalous, let alone to do so in the unclean house of a tax collector. So again, Jesus cares more about people then he cares about what the religious, hypocritical Pharisees might think of him. So therefore, we must not automatically assume, like the Pharisees, that if someone is hanging out with or having a meal with someone, that it means they are joining with them in their sin. That can't be our assumption. We must have a spirit of grace, not judgmentalism. We must have a spirit that desires the lost to be saved, not a spirit of pride. Now, on the flip side, if you are hanging with people that are negatively influencing you more than you are positively influencing them, and one of your friends notices this, and they lovingly and graciously present their concern for you, don't automatically label them as a religious Pharisee. I want you to check your heart, evaluate your thoughts and lifestyle, because your friend could be right. You could be falling into temptation and sin when around a certain group of people. 
And real friends show love by graciously showing their friends the truth, not overlooking their sin, and definitely not joining in on it. So the Pharisees are not concerned about the sinner's salvation, and they assume the worst about Jesus. So we see in verse 9 how they respond. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? These Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, thought that in order to be pure and holy, they must separate themselves from sinners. Now this is understandable. As mentioned before, you don't want to hang out with people that can lead you into sin, and you don't want to condone their actions. But here, I think a good uh, separation, a good understanding here is the, the issue for us today is whether or not the sinner claims to be a Christian or not. And we'll get more uh, into this topic in Matthew 18, but for now, I just want to make this quick point. If someone claims to be a Christian claims to trust in Jesus as their Savior, but refuses to repent of their sins, the sins they are claiming Jesus died for, then in hope that they would repent of their sins, the church must lovingly address their unrepentant lifestyle. And again, we'll discuss the concept of unrepentant sin in the church and how the church is supposed to handle this in more detail in Matthew 18. But for now, Jesus' focus is not on those in the church. He's not uh, talking with people professing to be followers of God. But he is meeting with people, eating with people who are known for their rebellious lifestyle. People who are known to reject God and not live in his commands. They're not trying to be holy. They're not trying to follow God. That is the people who Jesus is eating with. And that is the people we should also be eating with and reaching out to. We continue in verse 12. Now, when he heard this, that is Jesus, he said, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. So Jesus uses the analogy of the sick to relate to those who have a spiritual disease of sin. In other words, if you are healthy, if you don't have the disease of sin, then you have no need of a doctor, right? You have no need of Jesus' healing. You have no need of Jesus' death on the cross if you have no sin, if you're healthy. However, we know that all have sinned. Romans 3.23 Thus all are sick, in need of a doctor, in need of Jesus' healing. And that is why Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. He is the doctor making house calls to those spiritually sick. Jesus' view of sinners is totally opposite of that of the Pharisees. As one comments how Jesus saw sinners as needy and able to be helped, rather than as contaminated and deserving to be spurned. Sadly, the Pharisees don't realize that they're sick. The Pharisees don't realize that they're sick, so they don't go for Jesus for help. Instead, they condemn Jesus. They condemn sinners. They show no mercy. They show no grace on anyone. And Jesus makes this analogy clear in verse 13. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I don't, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So even though the Pharisees were the religious leaders and they knew their Old Testament, they still had something to learn. 
Although they surely knew about Hosea 6.6, where Jesus alludes to here is, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, they did not rightly know what it meant or how it should apply in their lives and how they should treat tax collectors and sinners differently than what they are. The Pharisees and many people today focus on appearing pure, appearing righteous, rather than actually being pure of heart. They were, they were more focused on the external sacrificial system. They were focused on the rituals, and they neglected showing mercy to sinners. Jesus points them to the book of Hosea so that they would learn from God's mercy, that they would be imitators of God. In other words, because God has had mercy on us, we should have mercy on others. We look to the example of Jesus' mercy. The tax collectors and sinners did not deserve or earn the right of Jesus' healing. They did not deserve his mercy. That's what mercy is. It's an unmerited gift. Thus, we don't reach out to people because they can do something for us. All right, how can, if I go to this person, befriend him, what can he do for me? That's not our mentality. We don't, we, they don't have to earn our attention. But we reach out to people because they need God's mercy, just like we needed God's mercy. Mercy is at the foundation of Jesus' mission and should also be at the center of ours. Jesus shows his mercy by calling sinners to himself. Calling sinners to be saved from their sins and follow him in obedience to God's commands. We must do the same. We can't be afraid of what others will think of us. But we must put mercy to others above our own comforts. We must put mercy above our preferences. We must put mercy above our fears. And we must reach out to those on the fringes of society. We must associate ourselves and eat with people, not because we share so much in common with them, but because Jesus was merciful with us. We want to share Jesus' mercy with them. And Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, he says. He didn't come to call those who think themselves as righteous. This is something the Pharisees and many people don't get today. Many people don't think that they are sinful. They don't think that they're spiritually sick. They don't think they have a problem. They, think, they don't think that they need to be saved from the punishment for their sins. The Pharisees thought that they were in right standing with God without having faith in Him, without God forgiving them of their sins. They thought they were in right standing with God because they went to the temple, because they performed the rituals, because they were born into the right family, all the while being prideful, and showing no compassion or mercy to others. As Dr. Osborne has written, he says, By failing to have a heart of mercy towards sinners, the Pharisees show that they are not right with God, no matter how they appear to others. They have not shown mercy. So the first step in hearing the call of Jesus, Jesus calls you to follow him, the first step is to recognize that you're not okay, that you have a problem that you have fallen short of God's perfect standard, to realize you are spiritually bankrupt and to realize you need God's mercy. Without this confession, you will be like the Pharisees who think they are righteous and don't go to the doctor for help. It's, it's like suffering in denial. It's like if you have a disease 
And the cure is available. It's free. It will totally transform your life and promises eternal life. All you have to do is admit you have the disease, turn to Jesus in faith, trust in him as God, Savior, and King, and be cured of the disease. Jesus' primary mission of mercy is the spiritual mercy to forgive sins. And that, too, should be our primary mission. But that doesn't mean we can neglect caring for people's physical or emotional needs, as we've already seen how Jesus connects the two, how people uh, are not just a spirit, but we are embodied spirit. Thus, we must seek to minister to the whole person the best we can, physical and emotionally. But what we must keep the eternal perspective at the center. Because as Wilkins writes, regardless of how, he, regardless of how much healing um, of physical, emotional, or psychological problems we provide, each individual will someday have an eternal reckoning. Our compassion for the world is insincere unless we keep this eternal perspective. Humanity is dying without the great physician and we are the ones who must go next door or around the world carrying this healing touch. So in light of this focus on living a life of mercy, not focused on external rituals, and Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, we get our second story. We see John the Baptist's disciples coming to Jesus and asking a question about fasting. And you might say, well, that's odd of what we just Read. What? How does fasting tie in to this? They are. Uh, it seemingly is unrelated, but they are connected, as we'll see. So, verse fourteen, we get the disciples' question. It says, "John's disciples came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast?'" So, Jesus and the Pharisees have been at odds. They have been arguing back and forth. They're, they're on different sides. The Pharisees do not understand the Scriptures. They do not understand God's will. They do not understand God's mercy. And so the fact that the Pharisees are doing something that Jesus and his disciples are not doing should, also, should already put us on alert. They're probably doing something wrong, right? We should be doing what Jesus is doing, not what the Pharisees are doing. This should be concerning to John the Baptist's disciples. So Jesus taught previously on fasting in his Sermon on the Mount, and there he, we saw that he actually expected his followers to fast. In verse 16, he says, whenever you fast, assuming that you will fast. But he taught them, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites. So Jesus expected his followers to fast at some point, but he did not want them to be fasting for the praise of men to make themselves look downcast and uh, get the praise from men. I'm like, you guys are so holy, fasting uh, twice a week, three times a week. That's not the purpose of the fast. And here we see that um, we know historically um, and from the Old Testament that Jesus and his disciples likely fasted for the Day of Atonement, as mentioned in Leviticus 23, Um and the Pharisees and John's disciples went beyond that fast, and they fasted twice a week. They went beyond what the Old Testament required, and uh, many Jews also fasted while they prayed for the Messiah to come. They, they, they were fasting and praying for the Messiah to come. It was an often Jewish prayer. 
as Dr. Quarles points out, Jesus' disciples cannot express grief over the delay in the Messiah's coming with their fasting because the Messiah has already arrived and was present with them. He goes on to say, furthermore, the day of atonement fast. Um, sorry, this is my conclusion. If this is wrong, Dr. Quarles, I'm sorry. <laughs> it says, furthermore, um, the day of atonement fast may also be transformed because we no longer celebrate the day of atonement. It's transformed because Jesus is the ultimate atonement of which we celebrate and remember not through fasting. But how do we celebrate and remember Jesus' atoning sacrifice? Through eating, through the celebration meal of the Lord's Supper. And so we're no longer in fasting, but we are in joy and celebration in mealtime because Jesus has come. We're no longer awaiting the Messiah. And this is how Jesus answers their question. He answers it with a question, and he refers to himself as the groom in a wedding. He uses this analogy in verse 15. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So Jesus is the groom, likely building off the metaphorical language of the relationship between God and Israel in the Old Testament. God being the groom, Israel being the bride who God loves and God shows mercy to. We see this, again, uh, a allusion to Hosea, Hosea 2.19. We see this metaphor between God and Israel, the groom and the bride. He says, I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. And then verse 23, I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So we see God's mercy on people, his compassion. And Jesus is God with his people. So it is not a time of fasting and mourning, Jesus is saying, because he's with them. The groom is part with his people. So he says, it's not a time of fasting and mourning, but a time of celebration. For Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God. Jesus is teaching, healing, calling sinners out of their slavery to sin into glorious light. It is a time to eat with sinners and call them to follow him. Wedding guests don't fast during the wedding celebration. But we also see something in verse 15, an allusion to Jesus' death. Because in verse 15, Matthew 9, 15, he says, The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast. So this is an, uh, Jesus is describing the time in which he will die and he will be buried for three days. During that time, people will fast. When he is gone from them, then they will mourn and fast. But the good news of the gospel, the good news that everything rests on, is that Jesus did not stay dead. He didn't stay in the tomb. He rose again. He came back to his people. And so while Jesus is bodily absent from the earth, he ascended to the right hand of the Father after his resurrection, he's still present with us today, as he promises in Matthew 28, 20. He says, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. If he's with us, then we should be in celebration. We should be living in joy because he is with us. 
So in the sense he is with us, our lives should be characterized by celebration because the Messiah has come. He has been risen. He has rescued us from sin and death. And so we joyously share this good news. We eat with sinners and we live a life pleasing to God. Now his disciples, they mourn for three days. But as John 16, 20 says, Truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Our sorrow turns to joy because we rest in Jesus' resurrection. And we rest in the fact that he is with us. That is why we can have joy. Because Jesus, as the groom, is with us. So in light of Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection and his presence with us through his indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Christians should have lives of true joy. His mercy leads us into joy. Now, this is not to say that trials and sufferings will not happen. But it does mean that in whatever situation we are in, we can have true peace and true eternal joy because we keep our eternal perspective. And we know that God loves us and he has saved us and we will eternally be with him. Therefore, I think there are, that there are appropriate times of mourning and fasting. But I think it, it, must, it must be done in light of the grace and mercy of God's good news. And we must not use fasting or any other forms of self-denial as ways to try and earn God's love or try to earn uh, his favor or appear holy. As we have already said today, God desires mercy not sacrifice. And we see how Isaiah 58, verse 6 and following, contrasts fasting with acts of mercy. Verse 5, starting in verse 5, Isaiah 58, 5. says, Will the fast I choose be like this, a day for a person to deny himself, to bow his head like a reed, to spread out his sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Isn't the fast I choose to break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to tear off every yoke? It is not to share, is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him, and not to ignore your own flesh and blood? That's what should be our fast. We should be um, living in joy and mercy to others. That's what should be our, our center focus. So thus we should put off our old ways. We, we should put off the ways of trying to earn God's forgiveness. Put off the old ways of merely performing external rituals. And put on the new way of showing others mercy because we have been given mercy. You can't try to combine the old way. You can't try to combine the old way of the Pharisees and what they're trying to teach of external rituals and appearing holy while showing no grace or mercy to, to anyone. You can't try to combine Jesus' teaching with the Pharisees. And that's how Jesus concludes in verse 16. He uses this analogy. Verse 16, he says, No one patches an old garment with an unstrung cloth because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine, new wine into old wineskins. 
Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. So what Jesus is saying, first of all, I want to make clear that he's not doing away with the Old Testament. The, the old wineskins is not a reference to the Old Testament. What he's doing away with, the old wineskins, is a reference to the Pharisees' wrong interpretation. He's doing away with the Pharisees' misunderstanding and application of the Old Testament. This is what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember. So the Old Testament is not the old wineskins. The Old Testament is God's Word and is useful for teaching. The old wineskins are the Pharisees' wrong framework and their wrong understanding of the Old Testament. So if you try to pour Jesus' teaching into their interpretive framework and traditions, you're going to have a disaster. What Jesus is saying, as Wilkins puts very clearly, he says, Jesus has not come to fill the old Jewish system of traditions with new life. He says they are inadequate to the new life of the kingdom. Rather, new forms are needed for his kingdom, and new practices must accommodate the new life of discipleship to Jesus. So as we saw today, Jesus emphasizes a life of mercy, a, a, a habit of eating with tax collectors and sinners to lead them to follow Jesus. We should be people that eat with sinners, that invite them to church, invite them to know about Jesus. And we should also be people of joy, living life with eternal joy because we know that God is with us that Jesus is with us, that he's been resurrected, that he has saved us from our sins. That is who we should be. We should be leading others into that with us. Thanks for listening. For more information, see unionchapelbaptist.org.